Hi, this is Raphael, and welcome to Ask Me Anything for today, the 30th of October, 2020. A couple of public service announcements today. Uh, firstly, if you don't know already, this uh, sec- segment is available as a podcast, and you can download it on your favourite podcast app, including the Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and pretty much every other platform in the world. And that way, uh, if you prefer, you can just listen whilst you get on about your daily uh, tasks. Uh, Secondly, I have another podcast with my friend and colleague, Chloe Bunter, called Pilates Elephants. And Pilates Elephants is a different format to this podcast. Um, Basically, it's a completely a spontaneous and unrehearsed conversation that Chloe and I have every week uh, about the elephants in the room in the Pilates world. So many commonly held beliefs that are actually myths and misconceptions, and we deconstruct them week by week. Uh, warning language alert for that one. Uh, and finally, final PSA public service announcement for today is uh, our clinical diploma, our diploma of clinical Pilates at Breathe Education uh, is now open for January 2021 uh, commencement. Enrolments are now open and that course is uh, for you if you're a Pilates instructor, if you've been graduated for some time and if you really want to learn, like really learn the body and how to use that knowledge of the body in the context of a biopsychosocial approach to pain um, to help people with pain, injuries, aches, um, medical conditions, etc., through clinical Pilates. So you will find that uh, in the links under this, uh, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a video that you're watching, in the description you'll find a link to all those things. So straight into the questions now. Joe Carey says, AMA questions, considerations for a client returning from a mastectomy, single in this case, no reconstruction at the moment to consider without further treatment, e.g. chemo or radiation. Um, Or going to drug effects considerations, as I know that adds another whole layer of the effect, e.g. I have clients who are super sensitive and in their hand joints, especially thumb post-treatment. Uh, so, Joe, um, for clients with uh, or surviving uh, breast cancer, um, the general recommendations, according to the American College of Sports Medicine, are to return to exercise as soon as possible post-surgery, um, and that might be up to eight weeks to, because sometimes people um, undergoing cancer treatment uh, take longer to heal. Um, sounds like that may not be the case in uh, with this lady because she's not undergoing chemo or radiation. So basically, the the, the regular post surgical guidelines apply. So that would be you know basically medical clearance from her uh, surgeon, but you know generally around the six week mark. Um, and the considerations there would be you know closed wounds, you know minimal swelling all of that kind of stuff. Um, But that's up to the surgeon to give clearance on when exercise is okay. Uh, And then the exercise considerations will just be, uh, firstly, just general post-surgical rehabilitation. So she's going to have lost range of motion, uh, strength and proprioception in that uh, limb. 
And so you'll need to work on all three of those with her. Um, and range of motion goes in, in the shoulder, goes in six kind of planes of motion or six degrees of freedom. So the arm, you know, you can lift your arm straight up in front, that's shoulder flexion. You can reach it out behind, that's shoulder extension. So she needs to work on range of motion and strength in both those directions. Then you can lift the arm out to the side, that's abduction. You can bring it down and across the midline, that's adduction. So she needs to work on range of motion and strength in both of those directions. And then finally, you can rotate the shoulder out and you can rotate it in. So external and internal um, or lateral and medial rotation. Uh, and she needs to work on range of motion and strength in both of those directions as well. And so initially, um, you know, once cleared by the surgeon, I would suggest start with uh, separating the range of motion exercises and the strength exercise. So do kind of passive range of motion. She can hold a, uh, like a broomstick in both arms um, and use her good arm to kind of push the, uh, or lift the operated arm um, into, you know, maximum stretch position. Um, she can do reps or she can just do a held end range um, for 30 seconds to two minutes. Um, and I would do that, you know, probably every day. If she's got the stomach for it, it should be a bit painful, shouldn't be agonizing, but it should be fairly uncomfortable. Um, and uh, then separately do strength work because her strength work will probably be in a smaller range of motion because she won't have the strength, or sorry, won't have the strength through range to you know combine both yet. And then as, as she gets back towards full range and her strength starts to increase, then you can start to combine those strengthening and uh mobilization exercises so that's kind of it's just a like a essentially a pretty straightforward rehabilitation protocol and rehabilitation is nothing but the process of restoring strength restoring range of motion and restoring restoring proprioception or coordination so you need to practice all of those elements uh, the second consideration uh, will be that uh, or may be that she um um, may have, if she hasn't had a reconstruction yet, she may be very self-conscious um, of her appearance. Uh, and so, you know, you have to read that or negotiate that with her. Um, she may not be. Um, but, you know, being sensitive to that, I'm sure, you know, knowing you, <laughs> I'm sure you will be. Um, but basically, you know, that could be things like, well, maybe not giving her a mirror to look in when she's doing it, or maybe, you know, facing her away from other clients when she's opening up her shoulder, you know, joint or whatever. Um, and the third thing is, uh, at least initially, may be painful for her to weight bear on it, like lie prone. Um, but you can probably get around that by lying her on a foam roller or arc barrel or something uh, to do uh, any prone work that you want to do. So I uh, hope that helps. And in terms of drug effects and considerations, so, uh, you know, number one side effect of uh, many cancer drugs is, uh, or number one and two, are fatigue and nausea. So those are just things that you work with in terms of, you know, you work with what you've got on the day, people's energy levels, their, their ability to concentrate, et cetera. Um, but the things that you mentioned before, like clients who are super sensitive in their hand joints, especially thumbs, um, well, I'll just, you know, work with intolerable pain. So, you know, if they can tolerate it, great, just keep punching through. And if they can't, well, you know, figure out an alternative movement that's going to work, you know, similar muscle groups or a similar range of motion, um, you know, you, instead of 
gripping um, with like in a like a power grip where you grip you know with the thumb wrapping over the outside of your fingers. You could grip with the thumb and the fingers on the same side of the bar or the strap handle, um, which might you know alleviate pressure on the thumb or just play around with different grips um, uh, in order to find you know what is least uncomfortable. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I would make an effort not to dwell on it and only sort of find, you know, modifications, you know, for for the exercises that are particularly intolerable for the client and don't make a big deal about it. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's a big deal for them, then uh, those are the modifications I'd suggest. hope that helps. Uh, Vicky Gallagher says, hi, Raf. Can you please let me know if you've lately had a question around Pilates for MS, that's multiple sclerosis. I think you covered this topic, but I can't seem to locate it and would like to listen to your views around it. I've just heard that one of my childhood friends has been diagnosed with MS. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, Vicky, I don't think I have done one on MS. We did one on Parkinson's a couple of weeks back. Uh, so multiple sclerosis is, uh, we don't know exactly what causes it, but um, most researchers agree that it is uh some combination of uh, an infection, an autoimmune response, and genetics, um, where basically uh, killer T cells, which are part of your immune system, um, cross over the blood-brain barrier and enter into the brain um, and attack your own nervous system. The, actually, the, the myelin sheaths around nerves in the brain, which are basically the, the insulation of the nerves, which uh, helps the nerve conduct um signals very fast. And so when the immune system attacks those myelin sheaths, that can interfere with nerve conduction. So um, when you interfere with nerve conduction, you get a symptom, uh, you know, widely varying symptoms depending on the, you know, what that nerve does. So if that's a nerve that, you know, innovates a muscle, well, you're going to have reduced ability to contract that muscle, probably reduce control of that muscle. If it's a sensory nerve, you're going to have, you know, reduced sensation or altered sensation in that body part. Um, if it's a nerve that, you know, um, feeds back temperature, you're going to get weird temperature sensations. If it's a nerve that's involved in cognitive function, you're going to get, you know, changes to cognitive function. You might get, you know, uh, symptoms in relation to hearing or vision speech, you know, wildly varying symptoms because the nervous system essentially controls every other system in the body. So uh, when you have an issue with the nervous system, which is what multiple sclerosis is, um, the symptoms can be highly variable. Um, and there are, there are four, you know, types of multiple sclerosis, but the two basic types are you know, of which all four types are one or the other. The two basic types are called relapsing remitting, which is the majority of people have relapsing remitting uh, MS when they're initially diagnosed. So it's typically women between 20 and 50 who are diagnosed. Uh, women are like three or four times more likely than men to get it. Uh, and relapsing remitting is a type of multiple sclerosis where basically there are periods of uh, incapacitation or periods of disease um, activity where you know, symptoms come um, and then interspersed with periods of remission, you know, where the symptoms go away and there's either partial or complete absence of symptoms. Uh, and the, when the symptoms return again, which they will, um, they may return in the same place or they may return in a different place. So people can, you know, get uh, initial symptoms of, you know, visual disturbances or 
auditory disturbances and then they might get tingling in their feet the next time or loss of control of their fingers the next time. So the symptoms can vary uh, sometimes, you know, within one person. So that's relapsing remitting. And then typically after somewhere between 10 and 20 years, relapsing remitting MS progresses to progressive, secondary, it's called secondary progressive MS, which basically is a, a slowly progressive form. Of, so basically you, you stop having the remissions and it just gradually gets worse over time. And uh, by the 20 year mark, something like 90% of people with relapsing remitting MS uh, progress to secondary progressive uh, MS. So there are, there are several drugs that can slow the progression, um, particularly of relapsing remitting MS. So, you know, that definitely needs to be managed by a neurologist, a specialist in MS. Um, and as to exercise, well, exercise has been shown to be uh, hugely beneficial for people with multiple sclerosis. It probably doesn't do anything for disease progression. So it probably is not going to slow her disease progression, but it definitely will improve her quality of life and prevent her getting other diseases related to inactivity like obesity, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, heart disease, etc., mental health issues. So uh, exercise is fantastic. And even people with uh, highly progressed MS, even people with severe disability due to MS, can still get benefit from exercise and still improve their cardiorespiratory fitness. So the general recommendations for people with MS for exercise are the same as for everybody else, um, but you just have to work within their exercise tolerance and capacity. And probably the biggest um, uh, you know, single issue for that is common across people with MS is heat intolerance. Um, you know, part of the nervous system's job is to regulate uh, heat. Um, you know, body temperature. Um, and so in MS, typically people have real trouble with thermoregulation, regulating their body temperature. So, um, you know, keeping people cool when exercising is a really good plan. Use fans, use air conditioners, use ice packs, um, you know, have them clothed in clothing that allows them to remain cool, etc. Um, and typically, uh, if if they do overheat during a session, it may exacerbate their symptoms for transiently for you know less than twenty four hours, uh, and that is you know to be avoided. But it's not going to permanently alter the course of their disease. It's just a transient increase in symptoms. Um, but you know the best plan is keep them as cool as possible. Um, and the other symptoms can be diverse. So people can have cognitive. Uh, deficits, people can have, you know, balance issues, strength, um, flexibility. And so basically you just work within whatever her particular symptoms are. Um, and if someone has balance issues, you can improve their balance by practicing balance activities, but just do it in a way that it's safe. So she's not going to fall over. She's got something to grab onto, or, you know, you're there to help her or whatever it might be. Um, and so it's basically just within her physical capacities, uh, including her energy and fatigue state and whatever, it's going to vary from day to day. So just every day you're going to ask her, how are you feeling today? You know, are, are we good to go? Is there anything I need to know about? You know, how's your balance? How's your strength? How's your flexibility? How, you know, how's your mental fog? Um, and just try and keep her as cool as possible whilst exercising. So hope that helps. Uh, Kate, uh, sorry, Natasha, Natasha Usseldinger says, uh, hey, Raf. How should I program for someone with a fused spine? Uh, so spinal fusion is a surgery where 
are typically given to people with scoliosis, very severe scoliosis, uh, and with some other you know, spinal injuries, so maybe someone who had multiple spinal fractures or a stenosis or something like that, um, where they, the surgeons basically uh, implant rods, usually titanium rods, um, anchored to screws, you know, a pair of screws in each vertebra. So they might fuse, you know, two adjacent vertebrae, say your L4-5 might be fused, or they might fuse your whole thoracic spine or your whole lumbar spine or your entire thoracic and lumbar spine in the case of a very severe scoliosis. So I don't know how much uh, this person's um, spine has been fused, um, but basically uh, once your spine is fused, those joints are no longer joints. It's now a single unitary, you know, um, structure, uh, so it's not at all bendable. So uh, now instead of a, you know, lumbar spine or a thoracic spine, whatever, they've basically got a femur, you know, a thigh bone <laughs> that runs up their spine. So it's not bendable. You can't train spinal flexibility in somebody who's in the fused region of someone's spine who's got spinal fusion. Um and so, you know, things that would be more difficult for that person in daily life, you know, are things involving bending. Like, so when you like do up your shoelaces or put on your pants in the, at the start of the day or get up out of a chair, you know, you have to bend your, you know, you bend your spine as part of doing that. If you put the seatbelt on in the car, you twist around and rotate through that. So, you know, your client's going to have trouble doing those activities. So you can help her. Uh, compensate for her lack of spinal mobility by increasing the mobility in her other joints. So if you can improve her hip and shoulder mobility, that'd be awesome. Um, parts of her spine that aren't fused, if any, improve the mobility there. Um, and just uh, aside from that, um, do everything. I mean, you can still do abdominal work, um, but obviously no flexion because she can't flex if her whole spine's fused. But you can do planks and knee stretches and, you know, she can probably even do things like teasers, although she won't roll up smoothly. She'll kind of go up and down like a plank. Um, you know, so I would just challenge her pretty much like a normal person. Uh, but just bear in mind, she can't flex, extend or rotate in the area that's fused uh, and thus work on extra mobility in the adjacent joints and uh, challenge her abs and back muscles and side muscles and whatever in you know, the neutral position that she's fused in. So I hope that helps. Uh, Kate says, um, Hi, Raphael. Hope you're well. I have a question for AMA. I graduated from Breathe in 2014 and now teach a lot of older people in the UK. Shout out to all the older people in the UK. Wondering what the latest research is on osteoporosis and loaded flexion, i.e. roll-ups, roll-downs, spine stretch, etc. Um, many thanks, Kate Langton. Now, I'm going to smoosh this together, Kate, because I have essentially the identical question from Magda in Adelaide. Um, so Magda says, um, osteoporosis, particularly related to menopause, it's known that load-bearing exercises are important and beneficial. Also, it's known or advised to avoid flexion. When I read the recommendation, avoid flexion, I'm a little concerned after anyone coming to Pilates group sessions, as flexion is a staple in every session. I'm wondering how strict one needs to be with flexion. 
even for a mild EG T score of minus 2.5, should one avoid all flexion? A roll down or a roll up in Pilates is a flexion, even if we don't load with weights or springs. Um, so also some research indicates that extension or isometric exercise seems to be more appropriate for patients with postmenopausal osteoporosis. I've not found any clear explanation and I'm wondering why is extension good? Uh, great question, Magda. Great question, Kate. So um, basically osteoporosis, osteo means bone, porous means uh, um there are holes in it, stuff can leak through. Uh, so osteoporosis is where the bones become more porous um, and uh, less dense, in other words. So everybody um, uh, has some kind of gaps in between the, the tissues inside the bone. Uh, in osteoporosis, those gaps are enlarged, so there's less bone tissue in there. Um, and we typically measure osteoporosis with T-score, which is just a measure of bone mineral density related to um, basically the, the population mean, you know, the average bone density, uh, and how many standard deviations above or below that you are. So um, uh, basically, you know, one standard deviation now, I think I'm going to be about right on this, but basically uh, one standard deviation is the distance from the mean where 70% of the population are. So basically, just say your you know bone density was 100. Well, you know if you go to you know plus or minus 20 you know units, so 80 to 120, let's say 70% of all you know people your age are within that range. So that's one standard deviation if 70% of everybody. You know, falls within that range. Two standard deviations, something like 90%, I think, of people fall within it. So um, uh, osteoporosis is diagnosed when someone is has a T-score of minus 2.5 or more. So in other words, you're two and a half standard deviations below the average bone mineral density for somebody your age. Uh, so that is like, you know, you're in the bottom basically 5% of, you know, bone mineral density for your age. So that's, that's a, I would say, uh, the first thing there, Magda, is um, a mild T-score of minus 2.5. I would say that's a fairly significant T-score. Um, that's definitely in the osteoporotic range. Um, and so I would avoid loaded flexion. So yes, so now, now to the question. All right, so for osteoporosis and flexion. So uh, the recommendation for osteoporosis and particularly um Postmenopausally, women are more prone to this because estrogen plays a role in uh, the calcification of bone. And so after menopause, there's less estrogen in the system. And so it's harder for women to deposit uh, additional bone tissue. Um, now, it has been shown and replicated, and the current guidelines recommend uh, that high load, high impact exercise um, is optimal for increasing bone mineral density in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. So I would, you know, look at basically exercise where somebody is doing 85% of their maximum or more. So in other words, an exercise where they can do five or fewer reps. You know, so if they can do if they can do 10 reps, it's not heavy enough. So where they can only do five reps or six reps, say, and they can't do more than that, that's heavy enough. Uh, so, you know, so imagine uh, push-ups, you know, a lot of 60 or 70-year-old women couldn't do more than five full push-ups, so that would be heavy enough. Um, 
Maybe if they can't even do five kneeling push-ups or can't do more than five, that's heavy enough. You know, one-legged uh, squats, lunges, um, you know, full long stretch, things like that. So think, you know, strong exercises where they can do six or five, you know, reps maximum. Um, and think roughly neutral spine. Don't get too, you know, finicky about it, but, you know, keep them basically straight. Uh, and the reason is when you – it. it it hasn't been shown experimentally that this is the case, but this is the, you know, this is the caution basically um, based on expert opinion that you see in the guidelines, and uh, you know, basically no one's game to do the study to test whether it's true or not. So basically, when you load the spinal, uh, the vertebrae in flexion, the you know, the two adjacent vertebrae. Their, their front tips come towards each other and thus you, you, you distribute the load within each vertebra more right towards the front of the vertebra rather than sharing the load right across the whole vertebra. You distribute the load more towards the front of the vertebra and that predisposes people to what's called a wedge fracture where the front of the vertebra basically collapses. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, it hasn't been shown experimentally that that is in fact correlated with more injuries, but it's basically you know, most people who know about it tend to uh, suppose that it is. Um, and thus, you know, it's no one's going to get ethical approval to do that study. So it just goes in as an expert opinion in the guideline. Um, now, so what constitutes loaded flexion? So, well, don't think about external load. Think about load on the spine. Um, so when you do a curl up, like a roll up or a teaser, something like that, um, you use your abdominal muscles to pull your rib cage close to your um, pelvis, and that causes a compressive load on the spine. So a roll up, in my mind, in my or as my definition, is a loaded flexion exercise because you are creating a you know a fairly significant you know, measurable at least, compressive load on those vertebrae. Now, for somebody with a, you know, normal bone mineral density, it's completely and utterly safe and you could do a million roll-ups without a problem. But for someone with significantly lower bone density, you know, it may or may not be a problem. Um, and they, you know, people may be doing those exercises for years and have osteoporosis that's undiagnosed. And then one day they get diagnosed and you have to tell them to stop doing those exercises they've been doing three times a week. And that seems a bit ridiculous. But the guidelines, uh, current ACSM guidelines, do uh, say avoid end range loaded flexion or rotation. Uh, and so, um, I, I, that's what I would do if I were in your shoes, um, avoid loaded movement. So in, in my definition, a loaded movement is anyone where you're working your abs to get into the position, you know, so things like roll-ups, things like knee stretches round back, things like elephant where you're in a rounded position, um, uh, you know, all in my mind are loaded flexion exercises. Things that would count as not loaded flexion exercise would be something like cat stretch or uh, like, uh, say, a gentle version of spine stretch forwards. Um, you know, basically a stretch I would, you know, class as okay. Um, but something where you're basically working your abs, you know, if, if you're going to work your abs in the position, I'm going to say, you know, don't do it. So I'd say, Flex your clients by all means, just don't, and load them by all means, but just don't do both of those things at the same time. So load them in neutral. If you want to stretch them, do some nice rotations and side bends and things at the end of class, mermaids, you know, 
on the mat or whatever, that's great. But don't think of it as an ab work. Do it gentle and stretchy. Um, and if you want to work their abs, just like if you've got someone with osteoporosis in your class, well, you can you can do a class where there's not loaded flexion. You know, just teach a whole bunch of planks and side planks and you know, quadruped stuff on all fours. Like you can work people's abs like crazy without doing any flexion. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, as to the question about extension, I've heard that, you know, they quote say it, but um, I haven't read it anywhere in a scientific paper. So I would say, Joe, that is one that is like, nah, to me, if you're extending somebody, well, what are you doing? You're loading up the facet joints there. So it's like, well, wouldn't you expect to have more load on the facet joints, and if you wanted to avoid concentrating load on one part of the spine or another, probably just keep them in neutral would be my my recommendation whilst loading. Uh, all right, Carly says, uh, hi, Raf. Um, I had a client say months ago she had a sore knee for several weeks after doing a movement which was just a side-lying movement, bending and extending one leg up to the side. In other words, lying on your side doing like lifting the leg up. Um, or maybe bending and straightening the leg up towards the ceiling. So that sounds like a what I'd call a side leg lift or a développe maybe. Uh, and I thought, but how could you have a sore knee from a movement with no pressure or resistance apart from gravity on the working leg? Good question, Carly. Excellent question. She blamed it on not doing much exercise prior to the class, but I still felt like it was my fault in a way. Um, also, is there a limit to how many questions I can ask? Carly, uh, Carly, there is no limit. Um, in fact, Magda's asked three this week. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to get to all of them um, because I have uh, a time limit on how long I can spend on this, but I will get to them next week if I don't get to them this week. So uh, this is actually a question you asked last week uh, along with your other one. So I'm getting to it this week. Um, so, uh, all right, back to your question. Um Lady lying on her side, lifting her leg up, has pain in her knee. Not your fault. Pain is not your fault. Um, it's one of those uh, situations where it's just the human condition. Um, so if you're listening to this or watching this now, um, if you've ever had pain in your body, raise your hand. Hey, everybody listening to this is raising their hand right now because everyone gets pain um, nine times out of ten. We don't really know what causes it. It just comes for no apparent reason, goes for no apparent reason. Think headaches, think low back pain, think sore shoulder, think sore neck, think sore knee. You know, these things just come for no apparent reason, then go for no apparent reason. Um, and so it's they're very poorly understood. Um, so definitely not your fault. Uh, how could you have pain uh, with no pressure? Um, really good question. Well, if your mental model, if your assumption is that pain indicates damage or wear and tear or excessive pressure on a joint, then that is a head scratcher. And I'd be thinking like, well, how the heck can you, there's no, there's virtually no pressure on the joints. Like there's not even body weight on it. Um, and that was, that is why I would suggest that you update your mental model of what pain is. Um, so pain is a, rather than thinking about pain as being uh, an infallible indicator of tissue damage. I would encourage you to think of pain as being really just an output of the brain when the the brain perceives too much threat, basically. Now, why do people get pain? Well, you know, this isn't a this isn't an accurate physiological explanation of why people get pain, but it's a, I think a pretty good metaphor, um, and it's the cup of resilience. So imagine that you have a cup, and it's you know it's basically how much 
you know, resilience that you have. And you can pour stuff into that cup because stuff always happens in life. You know, stuff that, that stuff that challenges your resilience, you know, so like not getting enough sleep. So pour in a bit of not getting enough sleep. Okay. And then we might pour in a bit of uh, financial stress. And then we might pour in a bit of uh, relationship stress because you're fighting with your spouse because you're financial stress is stressing you out. <laughs> then we might pour in a little bit of, you know, a fight with your boss. Then we might pour in a little bit of low physical activity. Um, then we might pour in a little bit of not eating enough good food and having too many coffees. Um, uh, and, you know, and basically, one, you know, when you pour in too much, the cup overflows. And the overflow could often be pain. You know, sometimes it's other things. Like, you know, when you get run down, um, you know, when we get run down, typically uh, each of us has a pretty familiar pattern about how, you know, physical symptoms that we get when we run down. Like, so for me, uh, I get a kind of crick in my shoulder where it joins my neck on the right side here. And when I get that, it just tells me like I haven't had enough sleep. I haven't been looking after myself well enough. Um, And if I really get run down, I get kind of a sore throat. And it's not, I don't have a cold. I don't, I don't have any kind of, you know, infection. It's just like I get a sore throat. And as soon as I have a good night's sleep, it goes away. Um, and so I imagine for most of you listening to this, uh, you know, watching this, there's something similar for you. When you get run down, you have some particular sort of physical manifestation or set of sensations in your body that tell you it's like, oh yeah, I'm run down. Uh, and for some people that is pain, you know. Um, and so that could be, the situation in her knee. Uh, and so the things that I would advise uh, to alleviate that for her, are number one, just do more exercise. Try not to worry about it. Number two, um, think, uh, you know, ask her, you know, have, have you been sleeping? Have you been looking after yourself? Have you been under a lot of pressure, you know, lately? Um, and often you know, the answer will be like, oh yeah, I haven't been sleeping that good. Um, and, you know, like, Sleep's a massive contributor to pain. So I would just uh, suggest thinking about those things. And um, if you wanted to do a like a, a, a little experiment biomechanically, it might also, you know, temporarily alleviate her symptoms if you just change the position of the leg. So if you literally just rotate the leg out a bit or rotate the leg in a bit or roll her hip back a bit or roll her hip forwards a bit, sometimes just changing the context, changing the physical position might... Uh, move her away from what's called that sensitized position um, and allow her to be more comfortable in the movement. Um, but it's not because the, her initial position was wrong and a new position's better. And there is no better position, but just a different position might be alleviating. Um, and uh, yeah, don't focus on it. Don't worry about it. Uh, pain uh, goes away much better when you focus on something else, distract her you know, uh, and distract yourself. So I hope that helps. Um, I'm sorry, there are a couple of questions I did not get to today just because I'm out of time, but I will get to those next week. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. I love to uh, do research on this and uh, this and that, and you know I'm learning a lot as we go along here too. And uh, I hope you find these really helpful. And if you're a student, I'd love to hear from you. If you're a graduate, I'd love to hear from you. If you're neither a student nor a graduate of Breathe Education, I would love to hear from you. If you have questions, uh, if you want to remain anonymous, you can. Um, just let me know when you email. You can email to AMA, that's Ask Me Anything, AMA at breathe.edu.au. 
au, and uh, I will see you next week. Ciao. Thank you.